Give an update on Operation Christmas Child. As you know, we're collecting shoeboxes to give to children in 35 different countries who are victims of war and, and so forth. And um, I asked Franklin this year if we couldn't open this up to some of the Indian reservations in the area. And so we're going to do that this year. We're going to take uh, some of these presents to children in our own borders who suffer some of the same kind of conditions uh, that people in other parts of the world. So we're going to start with New Mexico this year and then Arizona and Oklahoma and, and on and on and on in the subsequent years. But what we need you to do is we're going to have two tables set up. One is the Operation Christmas Child table. Another is a table uh, not far from it by the bookstore if you want your uh, the gift to go to an Indian reservation. Now, why do we do this? Simply because in the past when we have sought to go domestic with some of the gifts, some people have gotten upset that I thought my president was supposed to go far, far away, and so uh, where the needs are. So we have the far, far away table. If you want your present to go far, far away, you can bring it there. If you'd like your gift to go to the Indian reservations and the children uh, locally, you can uh, give it uh, to the other table, and um, we'll set up the distribution. Let's turn now to Psalm 139. Dennis Avey was the music director of a church in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, he went to a Sunday school class for eight-year-olds and overheard uh, one young boy lead the class in prayer. And it was so classic a prayer, he wrote it down. The young child said, Lord, bless our mommies and bless our daddies and bless our teachers and bless our brothers and bless our teachers. And God, please take care of yourself. Because if anything happens to you, we're all sunk. Would you agree? (laughs) Now, the good news is nothing is going to happen to God, but we are so dependent on Him, we would be sunk. Psalm 139 tells us why we're not sunk. It's the musings of King David on the greatness of God, the character of God, who He is, what He does, what He is like, and finally, the kinds of thoughts that God has toward us. You might say this is God's personal profile in Psalm 139. It's a psalm about his attributes. And in this psalm, there's a good healthy dose of doctrine and theology. And before you go, oh no, and get scared because of those terms, we need these things. Sometimes people get this odd idea that goes something like this. I don't care about doctrine. I don't care about theology. I just care about Jesus. And that might sound sweet, but it's dangerous. Because it's the teaching, which is what doctrine means, and the theology, the idea of God from the Bible, that is our spiritual and moral compass to lead us through life. And guess what? If we're off about God, we're off about everything else. We need to be on about who He is because we have a relationship with Him. Let's say you were getting on an airplane, and you were going to go over to Hawaii, And as you board the airplane and you start taking off, the pilot says, Ladies and gentlemen, we are having some technical difficulty with our navigational devices. But we're just a few degrees off. But not to worry, I think we'll land safely. You go, "Uh, think we'll land safely? Few degrees off? You see, a few degrees off now means hundreds of miles off later on 
when you follow that line far enough out into the Pacific and think about where you're going. There's not a whole lot of options out there. James Montgomery Boyce wrote some words that I thought they were important enough to share with you this morning. He says, We do not have a strong church today, nor do we have many strong Christians. We can trace the cause to an acute lack of sound spiritual knowledge. Why is the church weak? Why are individual Christians weak? It's because they have allowed their minds to become conformed to the spirit of this age with its mechanistic, godless thinking. They have forgotten what God is like and what he promises to do for those who trust him. Ask an average Christian to talk about God. After getting past the expected answers, you will find that his God is a little God of vacillating sentiments. He is a God who would like to save the world, but who cannot. He would like to restrain evil, but somehow he finds it beyond his power. So he is withdrawn into semi-retirement, being willing to give good advice in a grandfatherly sort of way, but for the most part he has left his children to fend for themselves in a dangerous environment. Such a God is not the God of the Bible. Now, there should be a disclaimer when we talk about the nature of God. You're not going to completely understand it. There are some things about God that are so beyond our capability, we have to just resign ourselves to that fact. If God were small enough for your mind, He wouldn't be big enough for your problems and your needs. And so we're going to touch on some of these characteristics of God this morning. First of all, let's look at what He knows in verses 1 through 5. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Now, theologians have a term for this. It's omniscience. That is, God knows everything. And if there's one thing that is so God about God... It's this. God isn't learning things. He's not observing his creation and discovering new things about his creation. He knows absolutely everything. I don't know the feeling you get when you walk into a library or a bookstore, but I get kind of a humbling feeling. I look up and see these collected volumes of knowledge. Years of research, a vast amount of subjects. And I think, man, I feel so dumb in comparison to all of this. It's so humbling. It's so awkward. But think, our knowledge comes through study. It's gradual. It's uh, something we accumulate. God's knowledge is innate, intuitive, instant, completely comprehensive. We are learning things as we go. God knows all things. Now, of course, that's hard to comprehend. It's impossible to comprehend. We don't have omniscience. In fact, experts say we use a fraction of our brain at best. A small percentage in a lifetime will we ever use of our brain. Now, what grabs David about God's all-knowing nature is that it's personal. God knows everything about him. It's thorough about him. God knows uh, our thoughts, our motives. He searched us. He knows us inside and out. He knows when we sit down to relax, when we rise up to engage in an activity. In fact, 
He knows our thoughts before we think them, afar off. Imagine how intimidating that is. You think of a a thought comes in your mind, it's a brilliant idea to you. And God says, I knew you were going to think that. And folks, that's the reason Bible prophecy isn't a big deal for God, because He simply lives in the eternal realm. We live in the temporal realm. Because God lives in that realm, being omniscient, He can look at the future, much like you and I look at the past. In fact, have you noticed how a lot of Bible prophecy is written with past tense verbs, even though it hasn't happened yet? And to God, it's sort of a rerun. Now, would it be a big deal if I stood and and told you what happened yesterday or last week? And God has that kind of accurate, intimate knowledge about the future. We live our lives, said the psalmist, as a tale that has already been told. Listen to what God says of himself in Isaiah chapter 46. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. Did you get that phrase? The end from the beginning? You know what's so striking about that phrase? That's the exact opposite of the way we view history. Do you see the end from the beginning? No, we see the beginning at the beginning. And we see the middle at the middle. And we see the end only when the end comes. Our knowledge is accumulative. It's gradual. We learn as we go. God's knowledge is such that he knows the end even at the beginning. That's why his predictions are so right on and so detailed. It's not like, he's not like a weatherman looking at trends, saying it's going to be this way and then it might not be that day. I heard of a couple going through Texas, stopped at a gas station in West Texas and saw a sign at this gas station, a rope dangling from the sign. The sign said, weather forecaster. And uh, the man in the car asked the gas station attendant, "Uh, how on earth could you ever tell the weather by a rope? He said, easy, Sonny. When the rope dangles back and forth, it's windy. (laughs) When the rope is wet, it's raining. When the rope is frozen stiff, snowing. When the rope is gone, tornado. (laughs) Wow, big deal. God knows things years in advance before they ever, ever happen. Now, Jesus displays these characteristics. Omniscience, knowing things, even knowing thoughts. Remember when Jesus was teaching in that house and Those four guys opened a hole in the roof and let down their paralyzed friend. And as he comes down, Jesus looks at him and says, Your sins are forgiven. As he says those words, there are some religious leaders off to the side who are thinking to themselves, How can this man forgive sins? It says in Matthew 9, Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Talk about being busted publicly. I mean, how embarrassing. Something happens and you just think something in your mind. Why did you think that? You bring it out to everybody, knowing their thoughts. Then there was the time when the disciples had been arguing about who will be the greatest in the kingdom. What position will we have in the future? Scripture says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, set a little child in their midst. And he gave them a lesson because he knew what they were thinking. He had omniscience. 
there was an elderly grandfather who uh, was quite wealthy, and he was going deaf. So he decided to go get a hearing aid, got a hearing aid, went back to the guy who sold it to him and said, I just want to thank you. This is a whole new world for me. I can hear conversations even when people whisper. I haven't had this for years. Thank you. And the man who sold him the hearing aid said, well, your family must be elated that you can hear so well. The man smiled and said, I haven't told my family yet. (laughs) He said, I just listened. And you know what? I've changed my will twice. (laughs) Now, this attribute of omniscience has to be something God has for Him to be able to judge fairly. Sometimes people will say, how could God judge the world? Simply because He knows every single action, every single thought, every single motivation by every single person. He's the only one qualified to judge the world because He's the only one with the characteristic of omniscience. And what is the result of this? Verse 6, Such knowledge, says David, is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Loosely translated, this blows my mind. This boggles my intellect. The weight of this thought is too much. I blow a fuse when I think, you can think like that, because I cannot. You know everything. You see, all of the characteristics of God, His attributes, should lead us to this point. They're so much higher than ours that the wonder of it all causes us to worship. And it does with David. By the way, since you and I could deal with this super being who knows everything about our lives and about the future, why would anyone want to look at a horoscope or 1-900 psycho number, psychic number, (laughs) to find out their future? Why would I let Dionne Warwick tell my future? She doesn't even know the way to San Jose. God knows it all. Well, that's what God knows, everything. Let's look at where God is. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. Darkness and light are both alike to you. God is everywhere. And theologians have a word for this. It's the omnipresence of God. That is, God is in every place present in the totality of his person. What does that mean to you and me? It means you can run, but you can't hide. That's what it means. God is everywhere. Jeremiah said, Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Now, we live in an age of disappearing people. People are disappearing for for different reasons. Tragically, some children are kidnapped. They disappear and their faces are on milk cartons. Some adults disappear on purpose. 
Some parents leave because for some dads, the the pressure of the work is too much or the responsibility of the home. Uh, Some mothers leave as well. Disappearing people. Stories of bank presidents who suddenly disappear only to find that he's disappeared with a large sum of money. Pastors who leave their flocks and their wives and children and run off with somebody else. But the point of all this is you can be a disappearing person before men, but God knows where you're at. He knows where every single person is. You can never hide from God. God is not confined to a church. Let's go to church and find God. God is everywhere. God is in every country. Everywhere present. He's in the malls. He's in the streets. He's in the bars. He sees, he knows everything. God is everywhere present. Now notice David has three things to say about the omnipresence of God. In verse 8, death doesn't hide us from God. He said, if I ascend into heaven, you're there. Now we'd say, of course, I know that. That's where God lives, right? Heaven. Look at the next phrase. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. The word in Hebrew, Sheol, the grave. The point of this passage is that God is present on both sides of the grave. You see, death is not a a, a termination. It's a transition. It's a threshold. It's appointed unto every man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. People will meet God in judgment. Paul said for the Christian to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Look at verse 9. Distance doesn't hide us from God. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. You know who I think of when I read this verse? Jonah. He tried this, right? In fact, it says of this errant prophet of God, Jonah fled to Tarshish and he fled from the presence of the Lord. I mean, he actually thought, I'm going to leave God's presence. I'm going to go to a country so Gentile that even God wouldn't hang out there. And he goes in the uttermost parts of the sea. And that's where God meets him. In fact, he has a prayer meeting inside of a fish's belly. Find that God can hear him way down there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. I wonder if perhaps the boat wasn't even named Wings of the Morning. There was Jonah running from God, but distance didn't keep him. I told you before about the cosmonaut. First cosmonaut from Russia into outer space comes back, addresses the news conference, and he says, I've been into outer space. I've looked around and I didn't see God. Well, after he arrogantly boasted of this, somebody in the crowd leaned to his neighbor and said, if he would have stepped out of his spacesuit, he would have. <laughs> Quickly. Distance doesn't hide us from God. Neither does darkness hide us from God. Look at verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me. I'll do my deeds in the dark, no one will see. Even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Why are bars so dark? Why are places where sin abounds so dark? So that we don't see each other. I can do what I do in darkness. Why do people usually steal and do those kinds of activities at night so they're not seen? 
Or when there was a power outage in New York City and I heard people hit the streets and burned and looted and stole, thinking we're having a big party in the dark, nobody can see. You don't think God could see? Well, but I couldn't see God. Oh, but he can see you. Years ago on television, there was a circus act live before the nation. On one particular evening, there was the Bengal Tiger Act that started off the circus. And uh, the man walked inside the cage with three Bengal tigers all on pedestals and uh, locked the door behind him. Stood there with his whip, looked these tigers in the eye, cracking the whip. Lights, camera, action. And shortly after the act begins, all of the power goes out, all of the lights go out. Imagine being locked in a cage with three Bengal tigers. They can see you because they're cats. They can see you perfectly, but you can't see them. And so you have to act like you can see them by looking in their direction and snapping that whip, which he did for uh, 30 long seconds until the lights went on again. be very intimidating. They can see you, but you can't see them. You can never do anything in secret. God sees everything. Wherever you go, there he is. Jesus said, I will never leave you or... That's why this attribute is such a comfort to believers, because he will never forsake us. Because he's called Emmanuel, God with us. And so it's such a comfort to those who know God that he is everywhere. Thirdly, let's look at what he is like. Beginning in verse 13, it's the almighty nature of God or the omnipotence. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there was none of them. David here turns a corner. He was talking about the fact that God knows everything, the fact that God is everywhere. Now he's speaking about what God can do, his skill, his power. And basically his point is God always operates at full power. He can do anything. All of creation is at his fingertips. Job said, I know you can do everything that no purpose of yours can be restrained. There is no resisting your might. There is no purpose that you cannot carry out. Example, God could take a 99-year-old man and make him a dad. Abraham. Take his wife, a 90-year-old woman, and make her a mom even more miraculous. And say to this 90-year-old woman when he said, you're going to have a child next year, and she laughed. And God said, why are you laughing? Is there anything too hard for God? God can open up a body of water and let people go through on dry land and then use the same body of water to drown an entire army. God can take a slave nation released from Egypt and make them into a world power in a new land. God is almighty. Now, every now and then, skeptics will come and challenge this attribute of God. And they may ask you a question. Is there anything God can't do? And usually we say, no. And so they may ask, as somebody asked me, this lame question. Well, is God so powerful, so big, 
that he could create a rock so heavy that even he couldn't lift? Actually, the answer to that is there are things God cannot do. He said so. God cannot lie. That's a specific scripture. And so when we look at the mighty nature of God, the best way to phrase it is this. God can do anything he pleases in harmony with his nature. So it's absolutely ludicrous. Can God make a rock so big he couldn't lift? God can do anything in harmony with his nature. God cannot lie. It's not in accordance with his nature. Okay, notice the example of God's power. You might think that David, in talking about how how powerful God is, might reach into the heavens like he does in Psalm 8 and say, man, look at the sun, the moon, the stars, the supernovas, the distance of galaxies. Rather, he goes into the womb of a woman because God's crowning creation is mankind. And of all of the things, as an example of God's power, is God's ingenious power in creating human life, the human gestation period. Look at verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you. That's Hebrew for my bones, my skeletal structure of a developing child. And then also it says, when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. The word skillfully wrought is literally embroidered together or knit Most scholars believe he's speaking of veins, the structure and the network of the vessels in a forming fetus. And then also notice verse 16. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. Uh, Being yet unformed means still rolled up, bunched up. And again, most scholars think it's the embryo developing into a fetus where all the members of the body are folded up. There's not any distinct proportions yet assumed until later on. Being yet unformed, God, you knew it in advance. You worked in advance. Think of it. We all started as a little speck, the size of the dot of an eye, a letter I. And from a zygote into an embryo, into a fetus, into 60 trillion cells in our body, into 100,000 miles of nerve fiber, into 60,000 miles of vessels, 250 bones, not to say anything of muscles and sinews and everything else. And that's why the psalmist says, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now there's an obvious point to be made here, right? In looking at the nature of God in in this light, it shows us that in the Bible's mind, in God's mind, personhood exists before birth. There's a whole debate, well, when is a person really a person? And that's the whole abortion debate. Personhood exists at the very moment of conception. And yet we live in a country and in a culture where the fetus is seen as a nuisance. To be expended of, sort of like an appendix. Got a little pain, got to get rid of, rather than as human life. Why is that? Why is that turn so dramatic and, and, and so prominent in our culture? Because we don't believe we're created in the image of God. That's why. That's really the basic problem. We have been taught that we are a wonderful, beautiful accident of nature. We're a a smiling, strong, fortuitous occurrence of accidental circumstances. We are uh, protoplasm. We are cells. We are, uh, we have made it through all of the problems of nature and through natural selection. Voila, here am I. 
We are a special creation. We're created in the image of God. We can come up with with original thoughts. We don't always, but we can. We can conceptualize. We can create and produce. We are clearly different from every other mammal. A teacher wanted to show her class how ludicrous this whole idea of the viability of life is versus the value of life from conception. And so she posed a problem to her class in situation ethics. She said, a woman comes to you, she is pregnant. She asks for your counsel on whether she should get an abortion or not. Let me tell you her family history. Her husband had syphilis. She had tuberculosis. The first child they birthed was born blind. The second child they birthed shortly after birth died. The third child was born deaf. The fourth child had tuberculosis. Now she's pregnant for the fifth time. She wants to know, should she go through with it or have an abortion? Almost unanimously, the class said, abort. The teacher said, congratulations, you have just killed one of the great composers of history, Ludwig von Beethoven. That was his family history. God's highest and crowning achievement of creation is us. And shame on America for its callousness and its worship of convenience. You know how many babies we've aborted since Roe versus Wade? Some 20 million lives. That's the entire nation of Canada in population. We have done away with. So God is everywhere. God knows everything. God is all-powerful and his crowning creation is us. Now let's look at verse 17 and 18 at how God thinks of us. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. What stirs the heart of David now isn't what he thinks of God, but what God thinks of him. He's thinking of the thoughts of God. And I think uh, of all of the points in this psalm, this is, this is the most humbling. This is the greatest. This is the, the central portion, the most staggering of all the truths. I mean, it's already hard enough to think that I have a personal relationship with someone who knows everything, is everywhere, and can do anything. But to think that that one cares that I exist is a whole nother, whole nother set of things. He knows me. He thinks about me. And if I were to number them, more a number than the sand. Go outside sometime. Get a handful of sand. If you want a fun afternoon, count what you got in the palm of your hand. And then go out and multiply it by what you think are how many handfuls of sand in that little yard of dirt where you took it from or the stretch of garden or that stretch of beach or desert. God thinks of you more in number than the sands that are out there on the earth. You might say that God had you in mind before the creation of the world. Have you ever had somebody say, I've been thinking about you lately? You've been on my heart. You've been on my mind. Maybe it's somebody you love or admire. And they tell you, you have been on my mind lately. How does that make you feel? Honored. Almighty God, who knows every star by name, every thought you think, thinks of you. I can see why David said such knowledge is too wonderful I'm going to blow a fuse just trying to zero in on that. Moreover, he not only thinks of you, he prays for you. What if you knew Jesus were in the next room right now praying for you? 
You'd go through that trial a whole lot differently, I bet, with a whole lot more boldness. You know what it says in Hebrews? Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. He's thinking of you. He's praying for you. And you might say, now that is absolutely amazing and humbling. Lord knows I need all the help I can get, all the prayer I can get. But it says here, his thoughts toward me. What does God think about me? What are those thoughts the Creator has about me? You might say, well, I know God loves me. He's sort of supposed to. He's God. But does He like me? What does He think about me? Well, God told His children in captivity of Babylon, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Thoughts of peace. Here they were in Babylon... Because they disobeyed God, and if anybody could think God didn't care about me, it would be them. They probably thought, I doubt God even thinks twice about me. God says, let me tell you what I think about you. I think about you in terms of a future and a hope and peace. Good thoughts. Moreover, listen to what Isaiah said. God says, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Remember in school, junior high, high school, girls, guys, you had that special someone you thought was cute, you loved. Girls would sometimes write his name on the palm of their hand in ink. Class was a little bit boring, they'd write his name. And when class got a little more boring later on, they'd open up and go, oh, (laughs) here he is. His name is right here. Precious thought. Or you write her name on your tennis shoe, guys. I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Whenever you think nobody cares about me, my friends and family don't think about me, God does by name. Marvin Rosenthal's book, Israel, My Glory, has a story of the taking of a census. And the census taker comes to a house, knocks on the door. The mom answers. The census taker says, how many children are at home? And she says, oh, let's see, there's Bill and Harry and Martha. And and he butts in and he says, never mind the names, what's the number? And of course, indignantly she said, my children don't have numbers, they have names. God doesn't look at you and go, oh yeah, you're 4,843,206. He knows you. The only thing he numbers are the hairs of our heads, Jesus said. And of course, those fluctuate from day to day, usually less. But he knows you by name. Paul said to Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his intimate thoughts. I was reading this week about guillemots. Guillemots are birds that live up in the North uh, Arctic regions, the coastal regions. And uh, they, they perch and they inhabit the, the rocky shelves of the northern coastal areas. They come by the thousands to lay their eggs. And because of the confined space, thousands of these guillemots will all lay their eggs together in a row. It looks like an assembly line, basically. Guillemot after guillemot laying her young. All the eggs look exactly alike. And you would probably think the mothers could never tell the difference if they would back off which egg is which. 
Studies have shown that even if the eggs are removed and taken to quite some distance, the mother can get them and bring them to the exact spot. (laughs) If God can make a bird do that, God knows about you and where you're at. And that little eight-year-old boy was right, wasn't he? God, without you, we're sunk. How does that make you feel when you think that God knows every thought and motive you have? Make you feel uneasy? A little bit shameful? Wouldn't that indicate your heart's not right with God then? Does it make you feel comforted? I mean, think of it. God knows everything about you. Nobody can rat on you. Nobody's going to tell God a new thing, a new secret. God, did you see what Skip did? I knew it before he did it. And because he asked forgiveness through the blood of my son is forgiven. How God cares for us. Father, we thank you so much for your precious thoughts toward us. Our thoughts can never do your character justice. We do know that you know everything. You are everywhere. You can do anything. And the crowning thing you did is to create people to love you. And in all that, you, almighty God, creator and sustainer of everything, even take notice of us. And you think constantly for us. And it humbles us and just blows us away. But we want to respond in worship, in love, in submission, in obedience. We pray, Father, for those who may not know you this morning. They would come to know God as one who loves them very, very deeply, knows the condition of humanity so well he sent his son to pay the price on the cross with his own blood so that we might have your salvation and relationship. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen.